Hello there. You're about to listen to an episode of Food and Health Talk, Legacy Food and Health Talks. You know, in 2023, Food and Health Talks rebranded and relaunched as change makers. But all the episode we've recorded up to this point is still available for you to listen. And you're just about to listen to one of them. Enjoy it. And don't forget, Food and Health Talks is now Changemaker Podcast. Thank you. Welcome to a new episode of the Food and Health Talks podcast, a show focused on educating and empowering people to create a healthier future through nutrition and wellness education. A show where you will find interviews with leading scientists making groundbreaking discoveries, innovators, and global food industry leaders. It is that show you do not want to miss with your host, Dr. Julia Oleanju. Hello everyone, welcome to Food and Health Talks. On this episode, we'll be focused on something really essential and important that should be part of our regular meal plan, and that is proteins. Well, we're not talking about the conventional protein that most of us are used to or familiar with. However, we're discussing alternate protein sources, which is emerging and exciting. It's innovative as well. In the past few years, different sources of protein have emerged in the marketplace, ranging from plant-based meat, plant-based milk, cultured or lab-grown meat, fermented uh, meat, just different sources of protein emerging every single day. And consumers are embracing this product. Many people are eat, uh, adopting uh, this products and, and eating them because they believe it's healthier for them. Some believe it's healthier for the environment and some believe it's healthier for them and the environment. So they are embracing it. So, which is, which is great. It's exciting. However, there are also some concerns, there are some uh, barriers that innovators are facing. So one of the key things I personally observed is that a lot has gone into this innovative products, that they've attained a level of perfection when it comes to taste, flavor, visual appeal. And I recently had a plant-based meat and it was quite an impressive ex- experience. If I will grade the product, I'll give it an A plus. And I happen to be a tough grader, but the product was that good. However, there are questions. Consumers have questions. And these different questions and different concerns are creating barrier to um a wider acceptability of this innovative product. One of the questions that may be coming up is how safe are this product on a long term? When a wider population adopts this innovative products and people start eating this on a day-to-day basis for a prolonged period of time, what will be the impact on consumer health and overall well-being. There are questions that can be asked, there are investigations that can be done, there are research that can be done to ensure that these products, these innovative products, which seem to have a different variation coming to the market on a regular basis, are all safe for consumers, not just on the short term, but safe on the long term. A lot of times people do not ask questions until you see problems and you see uh, consumer complaints coming in. But this innovative space, we should do things differently and think about the problems that could possibly exist with this new innovative product. How can we do this? by partnering with investigators, either at research institutes 
or in uh, universities across the country, partnering with them and getting them to investigate, ask questions, investigate these products, the different compounds and the different uh, products that we mix together to create a very enjoyable end product for consumers and ensure that we understand the impact of long-term adoption of this new uh, product on people's health. Of course, that we can know everything ahead of um, ahead of time, but we want to know as much as we can to ensure that when people embrace this product at scale, we're not working our way towards a big problem. That is one of the consumer concerns that innovators need to tackle to, to, to see a wider acceptability. But there are many more, there are many concerns, there are many um, other issues. And we have a panel of experts that came together to talk about the issues facing the space, the industry, alternate protein sources. And, um, and they talked about the issues, they talked about possible solutions, they talked about uh, the successes that they're seeing in the industry as well, which is good to know. The conversation is broad, the conversation is deep, and I want to invite you to take a listen. This conversation was recorded at the Food Niche Global Health Summit, summer of 2021. And I believe it's very relevant to our audience today. For people that do not know much about alternate protein sources that emerge in the marketplace, this creates an opportunity for you to learn more about it. For innovators that are listening today, wondering what are the barriers uh, to consumer acceptability and how can they navigate this successfully so that they can scale their products to a wider audience safely and successfully. Well, this is something that will be very valuable to you as well. So take a listen and uh, enjoy. I am Dr. Annabelle Broadbent. Today, our panel will discuss different innovative alternative protein sources, their pros and cons, and we're going to provide you with practical strategies to successfully achieve widespread consumer acceptability. That is the goal of our session. So I have the pleasure to have this conversation with three renowned experts in the field, Christy Middleton, Mark Driscoll, and David Bensequin. So I will let each one of them introduce themselves briefly and then we'll get started. So Christy. Hi, yes, thank you so much for hosting us today. I'm really excited to be here. I'm Christy Middleton and I'm the Vice President of Business Development for Rebellious Foods. We are a plant-based meat manufacturing technology company and we're developing novel, tech, uh, novel production equipment to make more delicious, widely available, and affordable plant-based chicken. We make nuggets, patties, and tenders, and our goal is to ensure that we can make products that are available to everyone in the world who's interested in eating a more sustainable and healthy diet. Fantastic, thank you. Mark? Thanks, Annabelle, and uh, hello, everybody. Uh, great to be here. So my name's Mark Driscoll. I'm founder and director of Tasting the Future. Uh, so I'm a sustainable food systems uh, consultant, uh, really working with businesses, governments, and other organizations uh, at the intersection of health, uh, sustainability, uh, and uh, nutrition. Fantastic, thank you, Mark. David. So my name is David Benzikin. I'm the founder and CEO of Mission Plant. It's a holding company for uh, investments and strategic consulting services in alternative pr proteins, primarily plant-based proteins. Prior to this, I spent uh, the last 11 years in the space uh, running a consulting firm called Plant-Based Solutions, which I sold in 2019, and then running a plant-based seafood company, which I sold this past winter called Ocean Hugger Foods. And I'm thrilled to be here. Thank you so much. Great, thank you all. So let's go ahead and get started. Um, in recent years, obviously, we have seen an amazing, huge growth um, in the demand for alternative protein um, sources. So what do you think is driving 
uh, this demand. Uh, Christy, we'll start with you. Yeah, you're absolutely right, Annabelle. Last year, we saw a significant increase in sales of plant-based food surpassing of $7 billion. And there's no indication that that's going to slow down. And in short, health remains the leading driver for why people want to eat more plant-based foods. And last year, the pandemic really gave another boost to consuming more plant-based foods because consumers were concerned about coronavirus and um, saw that well, by eating more plant-based foods, not only could they um, be healthier to fight against it, but it's a great way that we can prevent future pandemics. Absolutely, absolutely. Mark, would you like to add anything? Uh, yeah, just to concur with that. Uh, and uh, yeah, obviously organizations like the Good Food Institute uh, in their recent reports, you know, recorded, I think, um, 3.1 billion was invested in right. alternative proteins in, in 2020. Um, and that's, uh, that investment isn't going to slow down. And I think forecasts suggest that plant-based meat market will, will grow, I think, 28% a year uh, over the next few years and, and reach $85 billion by 2030. Um, and, and yeah, this is really driven by rising consumer concerns over the impact of food choices, definitely on health, I would concur that as a key driver, but also uh, increasingly sustainability, uh, animal uh, welfare issues, uh, for example. Yeah, absolutely. Um, David, what opportunities do you think this presents uh, in the category? I mean, this huge growth, what are some of the key opportunities? Yeah, I think just to uh, circle to the first question really briefly, I think that one major factor in, in the growth of the category is also the understanding from a consumer's perspective that one can uh, try these foods and incorporate them into their diets in a way that is convenient, affordable, easy, and delicious without having to change their entire lives, right? It's about being able to take small steps and appreciate these foods as part of a whole diet. Uh, I think that new consideration, as opposed to thinking of having to sacrifice and leave something behind, really makes people feel more comfortable in embracing these new ways of living. In terms of the opportunities this presents, uh, as Mark mentioned, investment in the space is growing that's really because demand for these products, while the, while the supply is growing, demand is outpacing supply every day. And so investors are seeing opportunities to respond to that consumer demand. And that allows for more innovation to improve tastes, textures, nutrition, functionality, and everything. And uh, we're seeing it in the growth of the grocery store aisle and the size of the plant-based offerings on menus. So it's a really exciting time and the more demand, the more investment, the more innovation, the more options. 100% agree. I mean, that's, you know, that's, that's all about what's driving it and, and the growth and the numbers that, you know, Mark and, and, and Christy just mentioned, you know, back up those claims, right, of that, of that amazing amount of growth. But when we think about um, what are the potential consumer barriers in terms of perception, in terms of actually, you know, buying into this, what do you see as some of the, you know, biggest barriers from the consumer's perspective? Um, Christy, go ahead. Sure. Um, well, I, I guess if I can also back up in terms of the, the barriers, you know, Mark mentioned 85 billion by 2030. And um, right now, plant-based meat only represents less than one-fifth of 1% 1 of the market. So even though there's this massive demand, there's simply no way that we're going to be able to meet that demand if we don't change the way that we produce plant-based meat and make more of that. Um, so some of the barriers are availability. You know, um, we're starting to see that change with fast food chains like Burger King rolling out an Impossible Burger, Carl's Jr. rolling out the Beyond Burger. Um, but I think one perception, you know, we have to give people an opportunity to try some of these delicious new innovations because let's face it, plant-based meat has come a long way from the veggie burgers that I used to make from a boxed mix. Um, so we've got to get people to try these new products and get to see that they have this delicious taste, the textures that they're looking for, the mouthfeel that they're looking for. And we also have to ensure that they're widely available. And one of the things that we're working on is developing that novel production equipment that will 
allow us to scale and produce lots more of these products so that we can ensure that they are available to everyone and that we believe we can drive down the price through um, creating the equipment that is uh, specifically designed to make plant-based meat rather than the equipment that we've been using for decades um, that is made for producing animal-based meat. Um, so we, we can definitely change the way that we're producing it, scale dramatically by these innovations that are happening in the space. So absolutely agree. I mean, that is, those are definitely barriers to getting the product to the consumers and to be able to make enough of it to make sure that it is available. Mark, from your perspective, any other barriers, how do we get through consumers? How do we make this feasible? So, so I'd agree, I think um, taste and texture, for example, is a kind of key uh, barrier. Often these barriers are opportunities in terms of uh, product uh, developers. I think around taste and texture, a lot has been done over the last two or three years in terms of those um, meat-based, plant-based analogs. So the Impossible Foods, the burgers, et cetera. I think there's still lots of room for improvements around Things like plant-based cheeses, so the taste and texture of cheeses, the melting property of uh, cheeses that go onto your uh, pizza. So they still remain a, a real barrier and further innovation and technological advances to improve the fibrosity, the taste texture of those products will be important. I, I do wanna to touch on very briefly affordability and accessibility. So I think the issue of price points is gonna be really key. Many plant-based products today are still deemed a little bit as premium-based products. So how can we make plant-based products more accessible and affordable, particularly to those socioeconomic groups impacted by food poverty, uh, particularly in the developed world with low incomes, um, but also I think the opportunity for the plant-based market, we often talk of the plant-based market in, in terms of the kind of very Western or Northern centric focus, but the opportunity to address things like the double burden of malnutrition, hunger, um, obesity through access of plant-based products in terms of emerging developing markets will also be a challenge and an opportunity, I believe, in this space. I agree, I agree. So thus far, we have the common threads of cost, of taste, first of all, which Christy addressed, which is really, really important, um, cost, availability, as those three you know, key uh, barriers that need to be met in order for consumers to actually in, you know, embrace uh, these alternative protein uh, products. David, I'm interested from your perspective in terms of what data do we have? What do we know in terms of consumers' perceptions and consumer expectations when it comes to alternative protein products? Sure. So uh, in addition to my work with Mission Plant, I also am the co-founder and owner of a company called Moonshot Collaborative, mm -hmm. which does consumer research on thousands of consumers in the United States who purchase plant-based products at least once every 90 days. And so this is primarily folks who are occasionally having an almond milk latte or an impossible burger, but then we'll have a steak or a bowl of cereal with regular milk any other day. And so um, that's the audience that I'm really hoping to influence with, with my work uh, because that's where we can make the greatest impact and it's where the largest opportunity is financially. Um, when we think of that huge segment of the market, the satisfaction with taste is really the biggest barrier. Mark and, and Christy uh, brought it up and it's really the biggest barrier. We find this in categories like yogurt, where over 25% of American households tasted plant-based yogurts last year, but still less than 1% of yogurt sales are plant-based. Um, when you contrast this with milk, where approximately 15% of fluid milk in the United States is non-dairy, uh, you see that satisfaction with something like non-dairy milk has risen tremendously, while other markets, they are growing tremendously, but there's still a long lag. And so that delta between a quarter of the population trying plant-based yogurts and only 1% of yogurts being plant-based says to me that people are so excited to find something that meets their needs and that, uh, that uh, satisfies their demand for these alternative foods 
but they're disappointed when they have them. And that means there's more opportunity to continue improving. And I think we're seeing that it's just a process and takes time. So certainly uh, between 2008 and today in 2008, uh, the non-dairy milk category changed dramatically because uh, Blue Diamond, the Blue Diamond, uh, the owner of Almond Breeze launched their Almond Breeze milk in the fridge. And that changed the consumer perception about non-dairy milks as being fresh, just like cow's milk. We can do the same thing in changing the perception of non-dairy yogurts, of meat alternatives and everything else, not just by putting them in the fridge, but by uh, presenting them in new flavors with new base ingredients, with new uh, you know, nutrition facts. So I think that we're getting there, but certainly taste is the biggest barrier for consumers. Very good feedback. Thank you. Um, that was very helpful. Um, I'm gonna pivot a little, and I would like to um, spend a few minutes focusing our attention specifically in those three segments of alternative proteins. So the three major segments or spaces within this within the category would be the plant-based, and that includes the meats, the eggs, and the dairy. Um, number two would be cultivated meat, and number three, fermentation, again, including all meats, uh, eggs, and dairy um, segments. So what I'd like to start out by, by doing is briefly highlighting what is the current state of each one of these segments. So I'm gonna start with Christy, and if you could touch on you know, any of the, these areas that you'd like to, but again, they're plant-based, cultivated meat, and or fermentation. Yes, well, I will, um, I will confess that I'm certainly not an expert at cultivated meat or fermentation, but I'm certainly keeping my finger on the pulse of what's happening in that space. Um, you know, the most exciting thing about plant-based meats and plant-based foods is that they're here, they're now, and we know that consumers are accepting them. And there's just so many opportunities in that space, as David was talking about. Um, and we, we know that um, you know, we are very close on taste and texture in that space. And now we have to work on price and availability. But there are a lot of exciting things that are coming down the pipeline in terms of fermentation and um, cultured meat or cell-based meat, whatever people want to call it these days. Um, I had the opportunity to um, go to the Better Meat Company recently. It's a, a company that is making, a, it's a B2B company. They're making a product um, through fermentation of microorganisms um, that companies can use to blend meat um, with their protein. And it's a way to reduce the amount of meat that's being produced. Um, I've enjoyed Perfect Day's um, Brave Robot ice cream that's made through fermenting whey protein. And so it's a vegan ice cream Cream, but it's made from fermented um, organisms that come from whey and it's delicious. It has that creamy um, mouthfeel that you would expect when you're eating ice cream and it happens to be vegan. Um, and then of course there's Mission Barnes and it's a company that is um, re reproducing um, cells from pig fat and they're going to be able to allow companies like mine to um, use that fat to produce plant-based meats that again will give people that texture and taste that they're looking for but that's going to come from a, um, a cell that's not even in an animal that's being you know reproduced in a fermentation tank so there's so many exciting things coming down the pipeline um, I think the biggest issue is that some of those things are um, still so um, they're still so far away from being commercialized um, that, you know, it's going to be hard to know when we're actually going to see those, um, you know, cell-based meats um, scale and be widely available and actually affordable to the mainstream. Thank you. That was very, very good feedback. Um, Mark, anything that you'd like to add in any of those segments in terms of key highlights of where the current state of that particular area is at today? Yeah, there's a, there's a lot in that question, obviously. So I'm only going to perhaps uh, raise one or two points. So in the plant-based meat, eggs and dairy, I think I've, I've already mentioned the barriers around taste and texture, but I think there are examples of technological innovation that's trying to address some of those. So um, extrusion uh, technologies, for example, actually initially a technology that was used to make metal pipes, but over the years, various types of extrusion, extrusion equipment have been developed. And with the advent of things like high moisture extrusion, twin screw extruders, this really technology 
has led the development of things like um, kind of fibrous spaces to plant-based meat products. So that really impacts on the, uh, on the kind of texture. Um, researchers are now exploring whether other technologies and manufacturing me methods could improve the kind of fibrosity, the texture of, of both plant-based and cultivated uh, uh, meats. There are other kind of manufacturing technologies Again, I won't go into detail, that are looking to biomimic animal meats um, and other ways of looking at uh, mixing both plant, uh, other types of uh, a combination of plant-based ingredients for the fibrous um, texture. Uh, in terms of you know, other products, uh, um, uh, Christy will probably know more about this than me, but I do think um, there's uh, lots of exciting developments around chicken and fish-based uh, products. Uh, fish is perhaps the newest frontier of plant-based uh, innovation, um, particularly a number of businesses and companies replicating fish species such as tuna uh, and salmon, and I'm sure we'll have um, some new exciting products on our um, supermarket shelves before long. Companies like Hooked and Good Catch and a number of companies that are looking into this market. Um, and fermented foods are already touched on, a real kind of new generation of plant-based um, proteins. I think there's some really exciting developments, for example, around the use of algal-based uh, foods. So that is a kind of fermented food that we're likely to see um, starting to enter our supermarket shelves uh, over the coming months. Thank you, uh, Mark. Um, David, anything else that you would like to add in terms of key highlights that we may have not covered just yet? Sure, so on the fermentation side, I think until recently, the most uh, advantageous and special thing about molecular fermentation or, or, or microbial fermentation is the ability to create really designer proteins. Mm -hmm. um, you know, when you're looking at a company like Perfect Day Foods or Clara Foods or Geltor, in essence, what they're doing is they're taking a microbe like a yeast, and those microbes are extraordinarily effective at replication, uh, like a virus would be or a bacterium or something else. And they're very good at replicating themselves. And so you actually tell it, instead of replicating your own DNA, create this DNA instead, and you give it the code for whey protein for the milk or albumin protein for egg or whatever it may be, and it can produce that. And then you remove the yeast and you're left with just that protein. And for B2B ingredient sales, this is extraordinary because what those companies are able to do is they're able to make a protein that is 100% pure and functionally superior to what's in the market. So for example, whey protein that's made from cow's milk requires taking the cow's milk and fractionating the elements that so you take away the proteins and the fats from each other and you get more and more concentrated until you have as pure a whey protein as possible but it would be too expensive and difficult to actually get to 100%. And so you're always gonna have some other components in there that are gonna create off flavors, off aromas, off functionality, allergenicity, whatever. So a company like Perfect Day can make whey protein without any other components. And so it's functionally superior. That means that it can be used in many applications for the food industry in a way that's even better than what comes from the cow. And that's what's so special about fermentation now, recently, we're seeing the next stage in fermentation, which is not just ingredient replication, but actually whole product. So I'm an investor in a company called Change Foods, which is uh, creating casein protein, but they're also creating entire cheese curds. And so they're skipping some of those initial steps and able to make whole products. And I think that the potential there is really fantastic. Um, yeah. Finally, on the cellular side, um, you know, companies like Just are, are finding tremendous success with regulatory approval and consumer approval in places like Singapore, where uh, the country recently became the first government in the world to recognize and allow for or authorize for the sale of uh, cellular-based meat and just sold those products, uh, not only in a local restaurant, but also through a food delivery app. Uh, so while I think we're still a long way away from seeing those technologies at scale in a way that uh, the vast you know, uh, majorities of the population could access them. The fact is they 
hold tremendous promise for being able to remove animals from the supply chain and eliminate the horrendous environmental impacts that using animals in the supply chain can create. And so the promise is really important to, to consider as well. Fantastic. And that leads me to a bit of a pivot. And I'm going to lead off with one of your key last statements in your answer there. And I'd like us to address, you know, what are some of the sustainability challenges that still need to be overcome? You know, when we start thinking about, you know, all these alternative proteins and why they're better, you know, uh, for the environment and for our health, uh, than animal-based foods, uh, we still have to consider, you know, what are some of those sustainability challenges though, you know, that we still need to address? Christy, I'll, I'll go ahead and start with you. Sure, yeah, well, we know that plant-based foods um, are more sustainable than animal-based foods because they require less water, less land, less, um, more fewer fossil fuels that they produce um, and all of the other environmental detriments that um, go into making animal-based foods. Um, on the barriers or the obstacles that we need to overcome, I think packaging is definitely one of them. Um, you know, so many of these new products that are coming out, um, ours, you know, they, they come in little um, plastic bags because they're a frozen product. So I feel like that's something that we need to find solutions to, um, but we need to ensure that it can be affordable because a lot of the um, innovations in terms of um, compostable packaging and stuff are or more expensive. Packaging in itself is expensive. And then when you add that additional layer and then ensure that they can actually be composted or recycled, um, I feel like that's something that, you know, broadly in the food industry needs to be addressed, um, not just in the plant-based space. Um, but certainly that's an area where we, um, as an industry, have this massive challenge that needs to be overcome. Indeed, packaging, 100% uh, agree. That is um, a, a definitely a barrier, but it's amazing how many different innovative you know, approaches have been um, used in this particular area of packaging and how can we ensure that the packaging itself, it's indeed you know, um, sustainable and compostable. So Mark, any, anything that you'd like to add, any other um, um, thoughts in terms of sustainability challenges? Yeah, well, obviously, uh, you know, the plant-based revolution, as I call it, prevent, um, poses many sustainability opportunities. And it, and it was an American author, I think um, Michael Pollan, uh, who famously wrote a quote, eat food, not too much, um, mostly plants. I love that quote. And from a sustainability perspective, Michael Pollan got it absolutely right. The single biggest step that will significantly reduce the environmental impact of the food that we eat and grow is actually for citizens, for consumers, to ensure that we eat more plants, basically put plants at the center of our plate. Uh, yes, you can meet, eat meat occasionally, but have it occasionally, eat less but better grass-fed meat. That will um, improve uh, reduce greenhouse gas emissions, water use, um, prevent land conversion and therefore biodiversity loss. But we shouldn't rest on our laurels, uh, particularly food businesses, food-based uh, uh, innovators, product developers, because um, you're innovating in the plant-based space means there's going to be increasing focus on the sustainability credentials um, of the ingredients that you saw. So a couple of um, big challenges is around sourcing ingredients from regenerative or agroecological agricultural practices. So practices that restore soil health, that improve water quality, that um, put more back in terms of uh, biodiversity. Another big area, um, packaging, Christy mentioned, but I, I think, you know, globally, one third of all food grown is wasted. Um, a significant proportion of that is actually in plant, you know, the fresh produce, fruits, vegetables, the crops that we grow um, through post-harvest losses in the developing world, but at the consumer end um, in parts of the developed world. 
So lots more needs to be done in the plant-based space to move towards more circularity um, or circular approaches to food system uh, innovation and actually potentially use that loss and waste, use it as an asset to develop uh, new uh, ingredients. So this whole issue of upcycling um, has um, potential huge benefits, I think. Thank you uh, so much, Mark. That was really, really good. Um, I would like to ask uh, David or Mark, if you wanted to add more into this one particular area, you talked about the, the sourcing of the ingredients, but how about we look at the actual process? You know, like if you think about the food manufacturing facilities and you even think about the energy and how the energy is being produced and how we focus um, in terms of the sustainability of the process itself. You know, once the ingredients are in, the way in which we manufacture these, um, you know, foods, um, any, any thoughts around that, either Mark or David? I'll pass on to David, but just briefly, you know, if you look at the life cycle analysis of um, plant-based foods, the biggest impact is actually at the farm level, agricultural level. Yes, I think food manufacturing, food processing, um, we really need to look at the kind of technologies in terms of um, the energy use, the use of renewable energy and technologies where and how waste uh, arises. Issues of water are particularly um, important, particularly in manufacturing processes in, in water scarce uh, regions um, uh, and areas. So everyone has a role all the way from um, sourcing of ingredients through the manufacturing through to distribution to final end consumption. And I should just add, I think in the context of COVID, um, there's going to be increasing pressure for food businesses to think about this issue of resilience. So how they um, can connect, um, produce food locally for more local consumption rather than perhaps export it around the world, subject to climatic, uh, other kind of risks as we've seen through through COVID. So more locally sourced uh, for locally um local initiatives with local production and consumption uh, systems and that will include manufacturing but i'm sure and, and clearly that would have an impact in terms of the distribution and transportation as you minimize those you know supply chains um so that's something to take into consideration as well as one very positive um outcome of looking at shortening that distribution and transportation chain yeah. Uh, David, your thoughts? Yeah, I'm going to play devil's advocate a little bit here. Uh, first of all, when it comes to the production processes, I don't want to pretend to be an expert. And I think, Annabelle, that you'd probably be <laughs> more knowledgeable, certainly, than I would, if not any of us. Um, when it comes to, when it comes to plant-based products or alternative protein products and energy efficiency or environmental impact, though, I want to, I want to be a little challenging on this um, in that, you know, in doing consumer research, what I've found is that consumers hold companies in this space to an unbelievably high standard on every single factor, from health and nutrition to sustainability, to price, to taste and texture across the board. And so when you ask consumers um, how important is it, it is to them that animal-based foods taste good, they barely care because in their minds, they already know what it's gonna taste like. So there's no barrier, it is what it is, right? Meat is meat, milk is milk, right? They already have an assumption. And so they don't have to have, it doesn't have to be overcome. There's no barrier to overcome. When it comes to plant-based products, there is. And you know, both Mark and Christy touched on the fact that the environmental impact of these products are inherently gonna be so much lighter a footprint than what the animal-based foods are, simply because the animals need to be fed the crops that we could be using directly uh, you know, need, need to be fed those crops that we could be using directly to make plant-based foods. And that means that there's a whole extra, extra uh, loss of, of efficiency there. Um, when I see a lot of the criticism of plant-based products, like say like almond milk, for example, being high in water usage, I find it almost, almost humorous because the fact is the amount of water that's used to make almond milk is still nothing compared to the amount of water that's used to produce cow's milk. And so I guess, 
my playing devil's advocate is a plea to consumers and to those who believe in the goals of this movement and of this industry to revolutionize our food system and to improve the world so greatly to support companies in the steps they're taking because we are all making huge strides in, in improving on the food system we have. And as, as a non-entrepreneur these days, as somebody who has been there, I want to speak on behalf of those who, who are, who can't do it so for themselves, um, you know, supporting companies where they're at and supporting companies on their journey is so important because if we are perfect on everything, we will be so unaffordable that we will not be able to make the greatest impact, which is just getting people to put down the burger and pick up the veggie burger, which is the biggest impact. So I guess that's what I want to call for. Um, in terms of specific ways, we can always continue to improve. Of course, I agree that packaging and freight and logistics are something that the entire food industry can improve on. And uh, utilizing crops, I think the biggest consideration, like Mark was speaking to, is really about recognizing that different parts of the world have tremendous resources and the ability to grow specific crops to those regions. And so trying to take a grain or a legume that is popular in one part of the world and make it the solution for another part of the world where it doesn't grow naturally is not optimal. The more we can invest in uh, isolating proteins from local crops around the world and understanding how they can be applied to incredible new foods, the more sustainable we can be while also supporting local economies. It's incredibly exciting where we are today, where we are now. And I think all three of you have highlighted, you know, all the key barriers and challenges and opportunities for where we are in those three segments of the space at the moment. But I'd like to think about the future. I'd like to think about, I'd like to pivot into, you know, it's an already, you know, crowded and competitive space. I mean, we looked at the GFI reports that just came out and the numbers, I mean, amazing, you know, even in the past year, really impressive. Um, but where you had one product, now you have, you know, 20, 25 different, you know, products, right, in a specific uh, category. So when we see that, how can we expect uh, in the way of innovation, what what are we looking into new ideas, new potential products that we haven't seen just yet? Um, Christy, I'll let you go first. Sure. Well, uh, Mark touched briefly on seafood, and I feel like that's the next frontier. And I'm hearing that from people within the industry. You know, we're working with retailers, we're working with um, food service professionals, and I'm constantly polling them on what they would like to see. You know, we're still tweaking our products and trying to ensure that um, they're, they have the optimal taste, texture, um, and consumer acceptability. But in terms of what retailers and food service professionals are looking for, um, that's definitely high on their list of, um, of their wish list. Um, there's a huge opportunity in the market. Plant-based fish currently represents only 1% of total plant-based meat sales. Um, and fish itself is a huge seller, in particular shrimp. It's the number one seafood that people consume. Um, and plant-based fish itself only makes up um, less than 1% of total seafood. And there are people out there who have recently seen the documentary Seaspiracy and now are um, becoming concerned or aware of the environmental and um, public health impacts of fishing um, from you know, their actual health and the health of the oceans to the people who are involved, for example, enslaved um, to go out and, and fish for shrimp. People uh, you know, are concerned about that and don't wanna be part of that system. There are people who are pregnant or nursing and wanna avoid mercury, people who have um, fish or shellfish allergies and people who just maybe don't wanna have that really particularly fishy taste, um, but still crave something that tastes like seafood. So there's a massive opportunity in that space, um, both from the plant-based sector to um, the cellular sector where we heard about innovations in um, tuna or um, you know salmon and I recently learned about a company that's uh, planning on doing lobster um, so it's really exciting innovations that are taking place in that space and it seems like there's definitely an appetite and an audience for more plant-based seafood. Thank you. Uh, Mark anything you'd like to add? Yeah I actually want to just pick up a point that David uh, touched on a bit earlier um, and this is the role of what I would call forgotten or, or orphan uh, crops. So um, just kind of three to five crops such as rice, maize, wheat, yeah. make up kind of 
60 to 70 percent of calories that the mm -hmm. entire human diet uh, is made up in, in terms of plants and yet there are 70,000, 80,000 edible plant species uh, out there. Um, many are grown in local contexts, in, in geographies, they build uh, resilience, they contribute to uh, local economies. And yet these crops, highly nutritious, often uh, with high protein content, um, have enormous potential, uh, I believe. They, they include things like ancient cereals, grains, legumes, nuts, fruits, vegetables, uh, roots. And I, and I think the food industry, there are signs that the food industry is starting to look at those in terms of, of nutritional security, but improve mm -hmm. livelihood outcomes, again, uh, for those suppliers uh, that supply some of these um, uh, some, some of these companies. Things like millets, for example, is a small seeded nutrient-rich cereal grain, which has been cultivated since the dawn of agriculture, particularly adept at growing in semi-arid regions, drought resistant, high in amino acids and essential micronutrients. Um, amaranth, another crop, a main crop from Central America. Lots of these crops, I think, we could uh, by, be paying more attention to in terms of, of, of their role in diversifying uh, our diets and as a, an important source of locally resilient protein. Fantastic, excellent. Um, a fan of all those that you mentioned and all those, you know, ancient super grains, um, absolutely positively. I'd like to see many more being used and incorporated as you know main food ingredients and also added to other foods um, to you know develop certain you know desired properties so absolutely yes um, uh, David anything along the lines of innovation whether it's in food or food segments or even ingredients per se yeah so I think that that uh, to Mark's point I was just speaking last week to a company called Rainfed Foods out of Toronto which is using a whole group of millets. Uh, it's a large family of plants and they were using multiple different varietals of millets to make milk. Uh, and uh, it's extremely uh, climate resilient and uh, low in water usage. So that is a great example of a plant that can be, or a group of plants that can make a big difference. In terms of other innovations, I'm very excited about all the innovations happening around mycoprotein, mycelium, uh, fungus, mushrooms in general. Um, just mushrooms in their purest form have such a fantastic meaty texture. Mm -hmm. uh, and then when you consider how extraordinary uh, the uh, whole kingdom is and its ability to create matrices of structure, you can really create some great textures. So I'm really excited by seeing what uh, companies in that space are doing. Also, all of the companies that are working with uh, kelp and, and other forms of algae. Uh, and the, there are, you know, so many different strains of algal proteins or, or algal plants that can be used uh, for proteins and other, and other nutrients from natural food colorings and flavors to proteins and other things, um, including a lot of functional ingredients that we uh, use in things like binding or gelification or other things in millions of different foods. So I'm very excited at seeing what's going on there. Um, the beautiful thing about plants is that uh, and, and fungus is that it's such a massive kingdom, as Mark said, you know, we're talking about tens of thousands of plants that we can use. And so the versatility and the opportunity to create ever increasing number of amazing foods uh, with various functions, textures, tastes, and nutritional profiles far exceeds what you could ever get out of, you know, a single piece of meat or a single glass of milk, right? We have so much diversity in how much we can create because the world is our oyster. We have everything at our fingertips. And that's what's so beautiful about the sector is the innovation we can have with all these plants. I share your enthusiasm, especially when it comes to mushrooms, by the way. Um, I see so much potential there. It is just, you know, absolutely um, one huge area of opportunity right there. Um, so as we think about all these areas of innovation and you think about how we're gonna make this happen and how do we find the funding to you know, move forward because it clearly takes a lot of money to explore all those different you know, thousands of species of you know, fungi and or plants. 
to determine their suitability for, you know, making foods uh, or being used as food ingredients. Um, so where does this support come from? I mean, when you, when you think about, um, you know, private industry versus governments, what do you think is the role of governments in supporting, you know, these alternative protein innovations? Uh, Christy? Yeah, well, that's a really good question. I mean, a lot of the funding currently is coming from private venture and you know, govern governments are going to have a lot of motivation to get involved if it's being privately funded. Um, but there's an incredible opportunity, as David mentioned, for private investors um, to get involved in this space. Uh, we are a venture funded company ourselves. Um, and, you know, we we see there's so much interest in this space right now um, with the investors recognizing um, that these companies have significant opportunity. Um, we certainly hope that with the help of organizations like the Good Food Institute and the Plant-Based Foods Association, uh, at least in the US, that we will see more government lobbying for subsidies or support for innovation in plant-based uh, in the plant-based space that will get the same amount of um, funding or subsidies that the um, animal-based food industries do. Um, and also that we'll see fewer regulations. So a lot of the work that I've done in the past is in K through 12 school food service. It's a massive market. We serve more than um, 30 million meals every single day in the US to kids um, who go to school and participate in the national school lunch program. And of course, we're teaching kids how to eat from the time that they are in pre-kindergarten. And um, there's a lot of interest in plant-based foods, but there are so many regulatory hurdles that it can be difficult for companies like mine to have products that meet all of those regulations. Of course, we found a way, um, but primarily the, the main protein that is allowable in schools is soy. And we know that there are other proteins that do um, you know, create that, um, pro that whole protein that um, the USDA is looking for to provide credits to the school lunch program. Um, but we need additional governmental support so that you can use pea protein or wheat protein, for example, um, instead of having to rely strictly on soy. Um, I did read just the other day that Impossible Foods now has a um, burger that's creditable for the USDA's school lunch program. But I believe that we need to to see a diversity of proteins and not just soy that is an acceptable meat alternate. And I hope that as we um, have more companies, um, you know, large food companies that are serving schools, for example, when you go to the school food, sh um, food shows, there's Tyson and Smithfield, and those companies are now coming out with plant-based alternatives as well. So I um, would expect that hopefully they'll also be lobbying the government to um, allow for more um, products to meet the school lunch program standards that are plant-based. Absolutely, and so incredibly important to start and target that particular age group, right? Um, mm -hmm. when, you, when they have, they're young and they have that ability to, yeah. you know, change that palate very early on and expose them to those different types of foods. Um, so that is a fantastic time in their lives to introduce them to these alternatives. Um, Mark, um, from your perspective, investments and funding and how do we make this happen, not just from food indus uh, private industry sectors, but governments, what do you think their role is? Yeah, so um, while the private sector is doing a lot uh, and there's a lot of innovation to address the consumer barriers around taste and texture, I think the role of, of governments is to address the other main barrier we talked at, at the top of the session around affordability and access, accessibility. And actually to give the plant-based sector just a level playing field. At the moment, the playing field is tipped heavily in favor of agricultural subsidies, procurement strategies, food-based dietary guidelines that favor um, the livestock sector, um, put it simply, billions of, of, of pounds, dollars, euros uh, are going in to agricultural subsidies to support very unsustainable, often intensive forms of livestock uh, product um, uh, production uh, and, uh, and consumption. We need a level playing field and procurement standards, food-based dietary guidelines that recognize the important role of plants within the um, protein 
section of those dietary guidelines and different governments vary, recognizing uh, the, both the health and the sustainability aspects of those food-based uh, dietary uh, guidelines. There are lots of others here. There are, um, I, I think, um, I come from, from Europe. Um, we've just got out of Europe in terms of, of Brexit. Um, we have um, novel foods uh, regulations. They're there for a reason, um, but some of the regulatory barriers uh, can be real hindrance in terms of accelerating both investment and innovation in the plant-based product development space. Thank you. Um, that's that's a very good point in terms of the regulations, in terms of, you know, um, just making it easier to, for that path to be open so more companies can actually get the work that needs to get done done. So thank you. Um, David. Yeah, so I think Mark touched on something really important, which is that there are environmental and nutritional reasons for the government to do right or at least not do wrong in this space. Uh, our populations depend on the government protecting us and acting in our interests. And right now the world is headed in a really bad direction in sustainability and in our health crises with diet related disease. And so the very least they could do as Mark has pointed out is to get out of the way and stop creating problems for uh, problem solvers and enabling the problematic systems to prevail. Um, one example of this is right now, uh, every day there is government funding in land grant universities in the United States like UC Davis, which are receiving money to figure out how to fatten up animals more quickly uh, through uh, uh, feed programs or understand how to uh, you know, get them to maximum weight or tenderness faster for, for optimization of the meat. Well, that's money that's, growing to that's going to increase the industry that's so problematic. There is so much research that is needed in the plant-based and alternative protein sectors that could be funded to help the entire world. And so I know that the Good Food Institute is lobbying right now to uh, create grants for the industry specifically to work on the research and development stage of technologies that can be applied across the industry to enable those technologies to be used open source and be applicable to everybody rather than having them uh, be required to be used by individual private companies in a locked up patent formula where they would not be applicable to everybody. And uh, if you look at the kinds of technologies that we're looking to develop, some of them are very similar to those that have been used in medicine or pharmaceuticals for years. And those were funded or supported by the government because the government understood that the, uh, that the health impacts for the population were significant if these technologies were enabled. We're in the same situation. Enabling the proliferation of plant-based and alternative protein products will dramatically decrease the risk to heart disease, diabetes, cancer, and environmental devastation. And it's the government's responsibility now to step up and make those technologies more accessible by supporting the, the academic institutions that are researching or that would like to research if funding is available, the ways to accelerate these technologies. Indeed, uh, thank you so much, David. And as we wrap it up, I would like to take us back to the very beginning. We talked about the focus of this presentation being about successfully breaking the consumer acceptability barrier. And we'd like to leave the audience with a key takeaway from each one of you as to why you think, or what you think that key strategy is in terms of breaking that acceptability barrier. So Christy, we'll start with you briefly. Oh, that's a big question. I mean, there are so many things that people can do from a consumer perspective. Just go out and try some of these plant-based foods. You will be surprised. Things have changed a lot. So do a meatless Monday and go try a new restaurant once a week and um, see what's out there. Um, and also go to work in this space. There are so many opportunities. We need food scientists. We need engineers, marketers, lawyers. We are hiring. And so are so many other um, companies in this space. So there a lot of things that we all can do as individuals to continue pushing this movement forward. The future is bright and I have a lot of hope and excitement surrounding this. Thank you. I share your enthusiasm as well. The future is indeed bright. Uh, Mark. Well, you know, I suppose my message is fairly simple. The more we can get plants into our diets, it's going to improve 
our own health uh, and the health of our uh, planet. I, I suppose my, my kind of key call to action, if you like, is perhaps less around consumers and, and citizens, but is a call for collaboration. It's a call for collaboration uh, within those small, medium, and even size large businesses, whether they're manufacturers, producers, retailers, to, to really um, start to shape the external context in, in which, uh, which we're operating. The biggest barrier uh, to change, I think, is, is the bit we mentioned earlier, the kind of the regulatory landscape. I don't see enough collaboration within those kind of emerging new existing plant-based businesses to really shape that context and lobby uh, for, for, for change. It's something we're, we're looking at in the UK with a potential establishment of a UK plant-based food and drinks association uh, in a post-Brexit world where government are looking at agriculture systems with a focus on public money for public goods, we need to put um, uh, plants at the centre of a new revolution in, in, in government policy and businesses have a role to play in that. Indeed, and Mark, I would like to extend your sentiment in terms of collaboration to see more collaboration among private industry, academia and government. So a lot, if you bring those three, you know, together, you, I mean, it, it would be amazing in terms of, you know, forward. Yeah, and actually I think there's a real opportunity to work for businesses to work with civil society, NGOs, not just the environmental sustainability sector, but I think doctors, health professionals, um, health academic organizations, can really see the benefits. So, so bringing the health sector on that journey, particularly when governments often make policy decisions, probably more around health uh, than sustainability. You know, consumers make decisions based more on health and sustainability. And I suspect in a post-COVID world, governments are increasingly looking at health of populations. So there's an opportunity there in my view. Agreed, agreed. And I'm sure that as part of some of the other sessions, the emphasis has been on presenting food and discussing food as medicine, um, which is, you know, a, a key part of, you know, achieving that overall health and bringing the attention perhaps of more government funding in that particular area. Um, so thank you, Mark. Uh, David. Yeah, I think that uh, the other speakers have, have said a lot of what I would have said. I think that the uh, opportunity to innovate and to continue playing in the kitchen is really the biggest thing we can do. Eat and uh, develop and test and cook and um, really recognize that consumers are going to shift when they are wowed with their taste buds. And so the more we can, as companies or as individuals, get food into people's mouths and continue to exploring them and, and making new ones, the better. Um, my call to action for consumers, like everybody else, would be to try and enjoy these foods and to support the companies that are doing such good and cheer them on when they make such strides. Uh, collaboration between consumers and companies is also really important. We should be celebrating the wins and uh, being excited and, and encouraging when we're seeing such innovation and such advancement in this space. So I'm very optimistic. I'm excited about what everybody's working on. And uh, I think that we're on the right path and we are going to stay there. It's about how much time it takes. Um, the other consideration is, um, you know, the one of the greatest catalytic events that could speed things up is food safety issues. And so I think being aware that, um, you know, we are on a path where we are making the food safer and the food system safer for everybody as well by making foods that rely less on uh, intensive animal operating systems is a really uh, good thing for food safety, particularly in the Far East where that's such a big concern. So um, if we want to win over consumers, we need to help them see that we are advancing sustainability, health, nutrition, taste, food safety, all these things at once. And we want them to join us in this journey.
Fantastic. Thank you so much, David. You particularly touched on um, a subject dear to my heart, which is food safety. We could have done the whole section just on food safety, but I'm glad that we looked at so many different areas in terms of innovation, in terms of ingredients, in terms of um, you know sustainability and so on. So I'd like to thank you so much for your time today, all three of you. Really, really appreciate it. Fantastic conversation. And just wanted to wrap it up by saying that our we're going to be available for um, if you'd like to reach out. Our contact information will be provided as part of the summit and I'm sure that all of us will be happy to engage with anyone who would like to uh, continue the conversation or has specific questions or would like clarification on any of the topics that we discussed uh, today. So thank you so very much. We really appreciate it and enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you. Thank you. A lot of fun. Goodbye. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. I'd like to share a very important tool that makes it very easy for me to prepare this podcast every single episode with you. And that tool is a platform called Anchor. Anchor is a platform created by Spotify, which makes it very easy to record, edit, merge, insert music into your audio, and just prepare everything you need for each of your episodes. It also makes it easy for you to work with your team as well. They could prepare the files for you and you upload easily or they upload for you. Whatever you want to do with preparing for and broadcasting your podcast, Anchor makes it easy. So check it out. It's free to create your account. And I also want to add this as a sponsored segment. Thank you again for listening to this episode. I look forward to connecting with you again in the future. Thank you for joining us for another session of Food and Health Talks. We invite you to subscribe to this channel, share this with your friends and colleagues, and don't forget to leave a review for us. Together, we are joining hands to shape a healthier future of food.